So uh, we have to work to uh, stay alert. You need to stand up at the back quietly. You can do that. But uh, Joel is a really uh, intriguing prophet. If you look at the first verse, you know, which is typically where you get kind of your introductory information. It just says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. That's not a whole lot of information for us. What is that lacking that might that we normally kind of depend on to give us background? Yes, a lot of times it'll tell you what kings he was prophesying during. And when you find that information, you know the what? The date, the setting, the circumstance. We don't know that in Joel. Now there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of uh, different ideas about when Joel was written, what time period it's referring to. But the fact is, we really don't know. It's really not clear for us. Um, And I I really don't have uh, anything to say about that, really. Uh, I don't see much of anything that lets us know. Um, so, uh, I think, I, but, but what I would say is that I don't think this book really depends a whole lot on knowing the specific date or the specific situation. I don't know that it would change a whole lot if we knew that. I really think that the message of the book is pretty clear without that and uh, it's pretty powerful without that. So maybe the Lord just didn't think we needed that information. All right. Comments or questions about the introduction to this book? That's about all I got to say, Micah. Would it be able to? Would you be able to say that it was before the exile? I don't think you'd have to say it was before the exile, but I suspect it probably. <coughs> that that would seem most likely, if for no other reason, you know, the books that the. the Post-exilic prophets were all at the end of the group of the prophets, the last thirty. So I suspect this was before the exile. I, I you know, think that's most likely. Other comments or questions? Okay. Uh, would somebody read verses two to four? Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, in this first chapter, many of the sections are addressed to some particular group. This section is addressed to which group? Elders. Yeah, to the elders, to those who've been around for a long time. And uh, we'll talk in a minute about why he addresses this to the elders. But he starts talking in verses 2 and 3 before he ever tells us what he's talking about. But you already know in verses 2 and 3 that he's talking about what? What kind of thing? Locus. You don't know yet that he's talking about locusts. Not in two or three. It doesn't happen very often. Something that, and I think you would say that stronger, something that's virtually unprecedented. You know, something that he's asking the elders, those are the ones who've been around the longest, if anything's ever happened like that, in their days, or if their dads had ever told them about anything that had happened like that. 
So he's going back as far back as the memories and the, the stories would, would go. And he says, you know, you should have heard of anything like this. Here's history in the making, we would say. Um, and what did he say they ought to do with this event in verse 3? Children. Yeah, and have your children tell their children this is an unforgettable situation. Something that would be passed on from generation to generation so that the lesson would not be forgotten. But he tells us all this, we still don't know what. You know, we know it's something really amazing, something uh, unique. Um, and, and in verse 4 we find out what it was. What was it? Locusts. What do you know about these locusts? Hungry. Yeah. And not anymore. <laughs> there was a lot of them. They satisfied the hunger. Wave after wave, swarm after swarm of locusts. You know, just devastation. You know, we don't have to deal with that here. I, I don't guess we have any locusts in the U.S. that do this kind of stuff anyway. Um, but but the locusts would just come through and, and eat up the vegetation. So they'd destroy the crops and, and uh, whatever. And you get this many swarms of locusts. I have no idea what the difference is between gnawing, swarming, creeping, and stripping locusts are, or whatever your translation may have. And uh, Joel's probably not trying to give us a lesson in entomology anyway. This is just driving home the point. You just had this constant barrage of locusts. We're not even sure if these were different types of locusts, if this is different stages in, in a locust life or what. But it's like there's just thorough desolation. And it's the idea you can't get away from it. You know, when you just get this, this swarm after swarm, it's just inescapable. It kind of reminds you of um, my famous passage in Amos 5, where, you know, you run away from the lion into the arms of the bear, or you escape from both of them, get into your house, shut the door, lean up against the wall, and the snake comes out of the wall and bites you. Yet you can't get away from it. Whatever you do is just right there. That's what's happened. That is what they've never heard tell of in their past. So we start out this book with quite an event that Joel is going to comment about. Comments and questions on these first four verses. Is it was as big as a plague back in Egypt? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, uh, it sounds like it, and especially when we'll go to these next sections and we'll see the effect of these locusts on various groups of people. It was as big a plague as you could imagine. Yeah, I think so. Other comments? Okay, let's see the effect on different groups here. Five to seven. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and well, all you drinkers of wine. Because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and as the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine, and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare, and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So what group is addressed here? 
The drunkards. The drunkards. And how are they affected by this locust plague? There's no new wine coming out. Yeah, it kind of sobers them up. The uh, wine is gone. Uh, he pictures it actually being cut off from their mouth. It's like it's yanked away from them in the very act of drinking it. Uh, it's a pretty powerful image. Uh, and they really lost what they were depending on in a, in a daily sense. I, if, if their sin doesn't wake them up, cutting off their alcohol supply does. And uh, it's, it's bad. How are they reacting to this? How does he recommend they react? Weep and wail. Absolutely. Weep and wail. This is this is horrible. This nation has invaded. <laughs> nation has invaded? What's he talking about? The locust. The locust, yeah. You know, this locust nation has come through. Mighty and without number, teeth of lions. You just think about the devastation. It's like they have lion's teeth just going through and eating up everything. And in effect in verse 7, my vine and my fig tree. Now that's interesting because in the Old Testament, there are quite a few passages, several passages at least, where the vine and the fig tree are kind of the symbols of peace and prosperity. Like 1 Kings 4.25 in Solomon's reign, when so Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. It's kind of like everything is peaceful and, and going well when we're all under our vine and under our fig tree. And that just then is picked up on in a lot of the prophets as kind of the symbol of peace and prosperity. Uh, in Micah 4.4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them a prey. So, when it makes the vine a waste, the fig tree splinter strips them bare and casts them away, this is just destroying the well-being of the nation. So the drunkards are devastated. Other comments and questions... On five to seven. All right, eight to ten. <clears throat> We're like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. Field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Now, it might be more debatable the group addressed here, perhaps it's the nation as a whole right here. And what's he telling them to do? <clears throat> like what? Like a virgin, because yes, you know what a terrible tragedy for the bride to have the groom die on the way away from the wedding reception before she ever starts the honeymoon. 
You know, can you think of anything that would be more just devastating and grievous than that? You know, don't even get to enjoy one moment of married life together. You know, that that's just, I mean, that's just about as sad as anything you can imagine. All this expectation of sharing their life together, and he's cut off. He said, wail like that. The, the deepest grief you can imagine. You know, you've got this time of eagerness and anticipation ending in the greatest sorrow. And look at verse 9. What devastating thing has this locust plague uh, brought about? Even the offerings cut off from the house of the Lord. They can't even offer him, you know, because there's nothing to give. He speaks here of the grain and drink offerings. Typically, how were the grain offerings and the drink offerings used, especially the drink offerings? Do you know much about the offerings? No, not exactly. What do you mean by how the drink was poured out? With the, how? In what, in what situation would it be Along poured out? with other offerings? Yes. The drink offering, especially often the grain offering, accompanied the offerings of the animals. In Numbers 28 and 29, I think, there are certain rules about you know how much drink offering and grain offering you need with each of the offerings of the animals. Of course, you know, the grain offering would depend on, you know, the, the, the grain crops. Uh, the drink offering would depend on the olive oil and things like that. They don't have any ability to make any offerings. Now, how, what depended on their ability to offer sacrifices? Yes, yeah, but I mean, what, if they can't offer sacrifices, what's the result? Yeah, they can't keep up their side of the covenant. They can't maintain their relationship with God because their job, their responsibility was to offer these offerings. God is not giving them the wherewithal to actually do what he requires them to do in the covenant. Do you ever think about the fact that the very ability we have to serve and worship God depends on His grace. You know? What could you do to serve God if God didn't give you the ability to do it? So God commands these offerings and then He cuts off the raw materials to make the offerings, the ingredients of the sacrifices. They can't do this. Basically, that suspends the covenant. That, that's really, that's horrible. A bunch of bugs have kept them from being able to offer the sacrifices they needed to offer to maintain their covenant relationship with God. That, that really makes it clear. What, uh, why do you allow that to happen? They can't, I, mean, it's, I mean, I'm not saying you would do this. I mean, not at all. But it's, it's almost like he's like sending them to hell. Like if they're dying in their sins, then it's like, oh, I'm not saying he's doing that, but you know what I mean? It's, it's logic. You know what I mean? Like why would he allow them to be able to cut off Good question. I'm glad you asked. Shane may have the answer. I think it might be, I see it as a, like a physical representation of their spiritual lack. 
it's it's the idea of you're not serving the Lord in the right way. You might as well not have these things. Um, so I think it's more of a it's showing them the lack of abundance of these resources shows their lack of abundance spiritually. I think it's a picture of that. That makes sense. It does make sense. We might we might go a step further, a step in a different direction. I mean, think about it. Do we have the right to expect God to enable us to keep the covenant? Do we have the right to demand that God forgive our sins? No, we're not. I mean, if God chose not to forgive our sins, would it be unfair? No. No. But you know what it was? Well, I think we get to thinking it is. It's like an inalienable right. We have the right to serve God and He must forgive us. Well, He doesn't have to. I mean, would you say that it's, you know, God by rights should forgive us if we repent? I say, now He says He will. But that's, that's even a matter of grace. Sometimes we're like, well, I repented, so now it's up to him. He's got to forgive me. I repented. Well, no, you know, justice. I mean, do you, what do you do in, in the courtroom? The murderer said, I repented. You've got, to, you've got to not punish me now. I mean, when I spent a lot of time in prison, I talked to prisoners who were like that. They just didn't think it was fair because, well, they they repented. They've been forgiven. And, and why should they still be serving their time? Well, we understand that. You know, that's, that's, that doesn't just cancel that out. So, you know, God's really not under obligation to, to make us, you know, forgiven. God's not under obligation to make us able to keep his covenant. And uh, I think this was a punishment for their sins. I mean, they were not doing what they ought to do. So God makes it more obvious that the covenant is being breached by just taking away the material. They can't offer the sacrifices. We're in Joel chapter 1, on the, about verse 9 at the moment. Other thoughts and comments about that? Through verse 9, Adam. We're not there yet, but when we get like to verse 14, they're not without the ability to worship and honor God. But like you were saying, they've gotten very comfortable with what they were doing and their hearts apparently aren't in it because they're not looking for what can we do, how can we honor it. Yes, good point. There's usually something we can do that would be better than nothing, even if we can't do what we would like to do. It's a good point. Look at verse 10. The fields ruined, the land mourns, the grain, the new wine, and the oil fail. The grain, the new wine, and the oil is the most common expression throughout the Old Testament for the staple crops of Israel. Those were the big three. What would it be in central Indiana? The corn, the soybeans, and fill in the blank. Sure, we have a third one. Wheat, or, uh, you know, because they did the livestock separately, so, uh, you know, the corn, the soybeans would be ours. Uh, Theirs was the grain, no, I don't know. All right, comments and questions through Joel 1.10. Did the priests get a portion of the grain and drink off of it? They did. So, 
So they're not going to be too happy, are they? They won't have anything to eat. Yeah. We'll see that a little bit later also. Oh, Gary, I forgot to ask back up in verse 6. So there where it says uh, nation in verse 6, that's referring to the locust that's one in the Yes. I think so. This is the locust nation that came through. Okay, Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, good point. Matt. It's a nation like Babylon, or is it a locust? It's a locust. Described as a nation. Yeah. All right. Um, Eleven and twelve. Be ashamed, you farmers! Well, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Okay. You would expect this group to be affected. What group? The farmers. Well, what happened to them? They lost all their crops. Exactly. You know, they don't have anything. The wheat and the barley, the harvest of the field is destroyed. Usually the barley was the food for who? Do you know? The animals? No. Maybe. The poor. Yeah. Wheat was more expensive. It was a higher class grain. The barley was cheaper and could be eaten by the poor. Both of them are dried up. You don't have the food for anybody. And, and the vine, the fig tree, all the fruit trees are dried up. You know, and he talks, uh, it depends on your translation, but in 12 he talks about these things being dried up. Well, along with the drying up of the crops, what else dried up? Their rejoicing dries up or withers, whatever you've got in your translation. Same verb, uh, because there's nothing to eat. And so the farmers clearly were some of the most directly affected, and they are wailing. Comments or questions through 12? Uh, feels silly, I really don't know. My version says vine dressers, and I don't know what vine dressers are. People who took care of the grapevines. Okay, just end it. Okay. Other thoughts? 13 and 14. Bear yourselves in sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, who spend the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God, that the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate it fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alright, so what group is addressed here? The priests. How are they affected by this? They can't give offerings. Yes, they don't receive and cannot... uh, be a priest for the offerings and there's not anything to offer. And uh, that, as someone has said, was going to affect their own income and ability to eat as well as their work. You know, priests basically have to be laid off because there's nothing to offer. There's no work for them to do. He says they need to gird themselves in sackcloth, lament, wail, spend the night in sackcloth because... There's no, there's no sacrifice. And then what do they tell them to do at 14? 14. 
turn to God by doing what? Yes, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, get everybody together to do what? Cry out to the Lord. They need repentance. It's kind of an explosion here in verse 14 of commands. And uh, beginning with these spiritual leaders, the elders, right on down to the ordinary inhabitants of the land, they needed to come together and cry out to God. That is the best thing we can do in these kinds of situations. And uh, things are horrible. It's devastating. Locust plague, I think we're going to see in the next section, there was a probably, to add insult to injury, a drought that had accompanied the locust plague. So it's just really horrible. Everybody come together, cry out to God for mercy and help. Comments and questions? What does consecrate mean? Like to uh, just set aside a special day in this case. Consecrate would be like to sanctify or make holy. Other comments and questions? Alright, well you've sort of got, I guess, the uh, commentary on this to some extent in 15 to 20. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts grow. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Okay, look at what he's saying here. Some really interesting statements. In 15, what does he say about the day of the Lord? It's near. It's at hand. So what does that say? Well, it looks like it has. Doesn't it? Is there something worse that's impending? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. And we're going to see that a whole lot more in chapter 2. I believe the locust plague was not the day of the Lord. It was not the ultimate destruction and punishment. It was a warning of what was coming if they didn't repent. It, it, It could get a whole lot worse. Um, it, it, they, wow, you thought the locust plague was bad. That's just a sign of what it will be like. You remember, it reminds me of uh, John, uh, John 5, I believe it was. I'm not mistaken as to the reference. Where Jesus healed a man who'd been paralyzed all his life. And he, he finds him a little later and he said, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happened to you? Can you think of anything worse 
to never being able to walk, being paralyzed from birth, well, there is a whole lot worse. You know, you hear people saying sometimes, well, you know, I don't worry about eternal torment because I've experienced that on earth. Oh, my. You know, we have no clue. It could always be much worse. I think that's what he's warning them about in 15. You think this is bad? Wait for the day of the Lord that's around the corner. Comments about that? It's really funny to see how, I don't know, to think that perspective on it, because a lot of times Christians, we view the coming of the Lord as something to rejoice about, something to be thankful for that we look forward to. You know, a time of restoration in here, it's saying that it's going to come for uh, as destruction, you know, like, that because their sins are healing so much that it's not a time to rejoice, it's time for them to be fearful. Uh, it's really funny to see that context. Yes. And, and to add on that, uh, but isn't hell described as destruction in the New Testament? I don't know much about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's what I sure. Okay, that's what I thought. So. Yeah. Good points. Other comments. So in 16, has not food been cut off before her eyes? It's like just suddenly. You know, it was right there, and it's gone. That's the way those locusts would work. You know, you could have a lush green crop. You know, have you ever had, like, uh, well, I don't know, we, we'd have uh, the sweet corn that we grew. Man, it would just almost be ready to pick. And either the coons or the birds <laughs> would get it. It was frustrating. You know, and, and, and guess which ears the coons go for. They don't go for the little runny ones. They go for the really good big full ones. You know, and, and that's the way this was. I mean, you know, you had the crops, and then right before your eyes, they're devastated. That just makes it sadder and more shocking. And, and what could man do about a locust bug? Yeah, you're helpless before these little bugs. It's just amazing. You know, you can't even hold back the least of God's creatures. And so, in verse 17, the seeds shrivel under their cloth, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down. Why tear down the barns? You don't have any food, you don't need a place to store it. Exactly. Why bother rebuilding your barns if you don't have anything to put into them? You know, the, the grain silos stood empty. Um... The beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly. Why are the animals upset? No grass to eat. He says, even the flocks of sheep suffer. Now why would he say, even the flocks of sheep suffer? Because, well, typically, like, Christians are, I mean, good people are referred to as the flocks of sheep, and it's saying, I mean, even the good and the righteous are suffering. That may be true. I don't think that's his point here. Yeah. Or the cattle, they wander and graze wherever they need to. The sheep have to be led to where they need to go. To yeah, I don't think that. Care of that stuff. I don't think that's the point. Good point. They'll eat anything and they graze closer to the ground. Sheep can generally endure harsher conditions. You know, the cattle need a better field of grass or whatever. That's what I've read. I don't know anything about livestock. That's what I understand. 
And so if even the sheep are affected, there's just nothing. You know, it's it's total devastation. You know, some, some animals are just hardier and they can what they do with less. And sheep seem to be that way. Uh, so I think that's his idea. You know, all the animals are in terrible shape. And, and he's, he, he, he describes it in verse 20 as panting for God. You know, if the wild animals are calling on God's help, how much more should we? You know, that the, the whole idea of portraying the animals is panting for the Lord. It's saying, take an example from that. So this is, this is devastation. This really, uh, really horrible situation. The locust plague. Yeah. Um, I raised sheep for quite a few years. Is that true? I mean, it's what I think you're about to get. Cattle, they eat the top of the grass, and the sheep, they eat closer towards the roots. So they can come behind and eat what the cattle don't eat. Very good, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's what I'd read, but I didn't, I didn't know personally. So very, yeah. very good. Other comments? Yeah, Larry. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when you said that it's, it's amazing that a few, what a few bugs could do. You know, when you, I, I think sometimes as, as the United States of America and, and just people in general, we feel pretty invulnerable. We have, we have nuclear weapons. We have, we're rich. We're the greatest nation on earth. But have you ever noticed that just a little snowstorm sometimes can, can, can devastate down? And, uh, and God, God can, God could do whatever. He could destroy us with an army of ants if He wanted to. I mean, I mean, there could be a lot of things that stop us that we see as insignificant. That there really, we have no strength of the Lord. All our nuclear weapons, everything that we put, just like the, the kings of Israel when they put their confidence in their chariots and their horses. God said, "Don't put your confidence in those things." And yet, we have a tendency to do that. And and, and a bug could stop us if God chose to. Well, good point. And what is it that we worry a lot about these days? What are we worried about? Now, well, yeah, but I'm thinking along this line. Flu or... Yeah, yeah, and that sort of thing. I'm thinking about, like, biological warfare, germ warfare... Or, like, I was just reading a paper yesterday, some new strain or something or other that's affecting tons of people in hospitals with, you know, even sometimes fatal stomach problems, some new bacteria that's resistant to the antibiotics, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, and I mean, a few years ago, before your time, but they were worried about the Ebola in Africa that was, could, you know, make you bleed to death and it was going to spread. You, you know, wow, there's all kinds of just Those are little bugs. You can't even see them. You know, germs. But, you know, what you're going to do if you were to contract some horrible virus or bacteria that there's no antibiotics for and it's deadly? You know, we're vulnerable to the littlest creatures we've been able to detect. <laughs> Other comments or questions? I like to, I have a margin though um, that says in the verse 18, even the flocks of sheep are suffering a fair punishment. I'm getting in my mind this idea of like these sheep, you know, taking the consequences for these people's sin and 
how, you know, just in the New Testament, as much as Christ was described as, you know, the sheep taken to the slaughter, that, or to the sacrifice, that he was bearing our punishment. I don't know, I'm getting that picture painted in my mind. Yeah, I think the animals, sort of like the animals get the fallout from man's sin and their punishment. You know, obviously the animals aren't responsible, but do you remember back in the sin in the garden? What happened to the world as a whole? It was cursed with the thorns and thistles and all that. And Romans 8 talks about how all of creation groans and suffers because of man's sin. Unfortunately, what we do wrong affects innocent victims like the animals. Good point. Other comments and questions on chapter 1? Well, you thought that was bad. 